and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I'm a professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. So today I'm going to kind of continue our discussion of the loves of three generations, but largely the fallout in some ways of that story. So if you haven't been following along, I read this story over five episodes, and then I did a kind of freewheeling discussion in the last episode. And today, I really want to talk about this question of the relationship between workers' rights movements or socialist movements and women's movements, because as I've said on this podcast many times, Kolontai was herself very critical of what she called bourgeois feminism and believed that women and women's emancipation as a cause would be better served by allying with, uh, forging alliances with socialist men, progressive men. Now, the kind of irony of Kolontai's story in some ways is that it doesn't really work out that well for her in the beginning, at least. And certainly in her lifetime, I think she was very disappointed in the progress that women made in the Soviet Union given her initial optimism and the power that Lenin had given her. Kolontai had issues with Lenin's centralization of power. She was a member of the left opposition, the workers' opposition, and in future episodes, I think I'm going to take the document that she wrote for the workers' opposition and read selected excerpts of it so that we can uh, talk a little bit about her left opposition to Bolshevism because I think that that's very important. It's a big part of her legacy, and it's one of the reasons why she was sent into exile initially to the diplomatic mission in Norway, but eventually she spends the rest of her career either in Norway, briefly in Mexico, but largely in Sweden. And a lot of her policies are completely rolled back by the Bolsheviks. And so just uh, on Friday, so February 28th, I published an article in Jacobin magazine on the Jacobin blog online about August Bebel, who was a hero, really, of 20th century, sorry, 19th century and 20th century socialism. He was one of the co-founders of the German Social Democratic Party, but he was, in fact, himself a socialist, and he wanted to call that party the Democratic Socialist Party of Germany, but in the end, he compromised with the followers of a guy called Ferdinand Lazalle and settled for the name Social Democratic. But I think that he was an incredible figure. He was a huge inspiration to Alexandra Kolontai. He wrote this book in 1879. He was actually in prison during the period that Germany had anti-socialist laws and Bebel was in prison. And he wrote this book while he was in prison called Woman and Socialism. It's probably one of the most important books in the history of socialist feminism. And it was very foundational to Alexandra Kollontai herself. A lot of her basic ideas about women and sexuality and their relationship to capitalism, as well as the ways in which socialism or the socialization of domestic work would liberate women from their economic independence on men, they come directly from her reading of Bebel's work. Bebel was this real ally to the cause of women's rights. And I think I feel very strongly when I say that because of his stature as a very popular politician in Germany, he probably did more than any other 19th century politician did for the cause of women's rights, especially in Europe. Now, that's not always been the case, I think, with left movements. And, you know, one of the problems I see is the whole brochalist problem. So these are men 
who are so narrowly focused on issues of class oppression and class inequality that they tend to overlook the very important ways in which class is structured differently depending on your gender or your race or your ethnicity or your religion or your level of ability or your sexuality or so on and so forth. And so we we talk about this concept of intersectionality. And I think that this idea that class sometimes can become too reductionist is a fair critique of the left. And Bebel did not fall into that category, but Kolontai's colleagues in Bolshevik Russia unfortunately did. So the best book to read about the early debates surrounding the changes to the Soviet family codes is Wendy Goldman's wonderful book, Women's State and Revolution. And in this book, she really documents how Kolontai's attempts to socialize domestic work to provide a vast network of children's homes and kindergartens and creches to support women uh, to become economically independent of their husbands, obviously to liberalize divorce, and to build laundries, public laundries, canteens, mending cooperatives, all of the kinds of things that would liberate women from the domestic work that they also did at home end up being really expensive. And not only are they expensive in a country that has very limited economic resources, partially because of the devastation that had occurred after World War I and then the Civil War, and then, of course, there was a famine. So this was a country that was really struggling to get by, but also because her male comrades in the party just didn't think that women's liberation was as important as industrialization or economic growth or growing the military or basically making the Soviet Union strong. So there was a, an argument about expediency. And, and the best place that this played out was in the question of homeless children, because you had a lot of abandoned street children living in the early period of the Soviet Union. Uh, by some accounts, millions of them roamed the streets of Moscow and Petersburg. Many of them turned to crime, sort of petty crime. They were thieves and pickpockets, and uh, a lot of young girls you know, engaged in sex work. They sort of grew up on the streets in gangs. And the initial idea had been that all children would be cared for by the new socialist state. And so in the 1918 Family Code, they had abolished adoption. They had essentially made it illegal for families to adopt unwanted orphaned children. And the big problem came with not only the orphaned children, but also abandoned children. So children whose parents just couldn't take care of them or didn't want to take care of them. A lot of these were women who had been widowed or abandoned by their husbands. They didn't have the resources to care for these children. So many of these children end up on the street. And there's this big debate about what the state should do about these children. And to make a long story short, again, as I said, this is very well documented and chronicled in Wendy Goldman's book, the state reverses most of the policies that Kolontai puts into place. Not all of them. They still pay lip service to the equality of men and women. But when Kolontai suggests raising a two-ruble tax on all working Soviets to fund a vast network of children's homes to deal with the problem of abandoned children, her Bolshevik colleagues basically shoot her down and tell her that it's just too expensive 
They need the money to do other things. And the problem of children and of women's rights can wait. So essentially what happens in 1936 when Stalin reverses most of Kollontai's gains in the 1936 revision of the Soviet family code is that Stalin recognizes that why should the state pay for all of this domestic work and this care work that women do when women will in fact do it at home for free. And one of the things, of course, that also happens is they allow for families to adopt children. These are largely peasant families that want laborers. And so they essentially, quote unquote, adopt these children to work on their their farms. The children are pretty terribly exploited and, and it's not a great solution for anyone. But lots of things are not great under Stalin and the Soviet Union. I don't think I need to say that. But, but the story, the, the message of this story, and I think um, maybe the reason why the loves of three generations caused such a controversy is that Kolontai was really very idealistic. And she was thinking about, you know, the concept of love and she was thinking about sexuality and she was thinking about the family and whether the family would survive the demise of capitalism, what the family might look like and how it will be different under socialism, you know, the importance of things like comradely love. She was really dealing with conceptual questions that her male colleagues kind of thought were a little silly. They they chastised her for not being serious about the hard work that the revolution was going to require. Now, you can understand that the revolution, especially in early Soviet Russia, was a pretty precarious thing. It was pretty fragile. It needed a lot of um, work to defend it. And it certainly did not, they did not have surplus funds available to fund things like a national child, you know, network of children's homes or whatever. But I do think that historically, men tend to mobilize women and women's issues to support their revolutionary goals. And I think this can be said quite fairly about the Bolsheviks. I mean, we have a lot of quotes of Lenin where he essentially admits this, that women, we need, we need the support of women in order to make this revolution work. And then once the revolution is accomplished or once the progressive goals are accomplished, the male leaders just sort of sell women down the river or basically turn their backs on women's issues and say that they're silly, they're not important, they should take second place to more serious issues like industrialization or the consolidation of power, that women's concerns with family uh, and love and sexuality are frivolous, uh, maybe purient. And so there is, I think, a very real fear that when women throw in their lot with these sort of leftist movements, that their priorities and concerns will later be abandoned once the goal of progressive change has been achieved. I know this is a, a big anxiety for a lot of women, and I think that Kolontai probably felt very betrayed by her Bolshevik colleagues, particularly by Lenin himself, who you know, in a way was somewhat conservative in his ideas about family and sexuality and, you know, sort of looked down on Kalantai's kind of more liberal sexual behavior, certainly very atypical for women in that period of time in Russia. And she really tried to make progressive changes. She dedicated her entire life to trying to support the struggle for women's rights, women's emancipation, women's economic independence through the socialization of childcare and domestic work. 
and the liberalization of divorce and the reimagining of the family, but she really didn't find allies among the men who sort of promised that they were on board for this more liberal, radical, really, agenda. And I think that's because, I mean, I'm just sort of theorizing here that there's still a fair amount of sexism out there on the left. And reading Kolontai and thinking about Kolontai's life in the Soviet Union and in the way she was treated by her Bolshevik colleagues and the way she was, her, her concerns with family and sexuality were sort of ruthlessly made fun of and she was belittled, even though, you know, she was talking about things that Bebel had talked about, that Engels had talked about. These were all concerns that were sort of boiled in to the early debates about the relationship between women and socialism and workers' emancipation going back to the, um, you know, very early 19th century. So anyway, I think that the loves of three generations as a product of literature, you know, is, is an interesting story, but it's more important as a marker of the period of time when Colin Tai sort of permanently fell out with her Bolshevik colleagues. This story sort of did irreparable damage in many ways to her reputation, and she was essentially sent off into exile. She wasn't sent to Siberia, to the Gulag, but she was taken out of the center of power and sent away into diplomatic service, largely began because she was very erudite and spoke all these languages and had the sort of manners that were very useful in the world of diplomacy as, a, you know, since she was representing the new Soviet state. But her, her deeper goals of sort of sexual liberation, of reimagining the family, they all kind of fall flat. And if we look at the history of the Soviet Union, it's definitely a history of, especially during the Stalin era, fairly conservative, nuclear family, masculinist, sexist politics. Women are responsible for doing all the housework and taking care of all the children. And yes, eventually they, you know, they have careers and they are very well educated and, you know, things do eventually start to change. And I think that we can make interesting arguments about whether or not Kolontai's vision of sexuality in the family begins to take root in maybe the, the 80s, especially during Glasnost and Perestroika. Uh, but, but in terms of Kolontai's life, when she died in 1952, I think that she probably looked around at Soviet society and saw women working full-time jobs and yet still responsible for privately providing domestic care and child care and all the things uh, that, you know, contribute to women's so-called double burden in the Eastern Bloc and was fairly disappointed with the progress of her male colleagues, probably none more than Stalin. But these are the risks that you take when you sign on to a project that says that it's a big tent, that it uh, is inclusive of all different points of view while it's in the opposition. And then when that movement or party takes power, whether or not it remains committed to those big tent politics, whether it remains committed to including the concerns of people within the movement that joined the movement for strategic reasons is always a, a serious question that we have to consider. And so I think it means that for activists, for women, I do think the story of August Babel shows us that there are men as allies, especially progressive men. We have a history of good ones, but we also have a history of bad ones. And so 
we should push back against the brochelists who want us to believe that class is the most important thing. And we should also keep pressing our cause of women's emancipation, of economic independence, of the decommodification of our affections and attentions and emotions. And I think the most important thing in any big tent or progressive movement is to make sure that you are supporting the larger movement, but you don't let go of the issues that are important to you. So that's my little political reflection for the day. And I am really grateful for everyone for listening. Please, if you get a chance, rate or star or do whatever it is that you do to tell people that you like this podcast. I have been told that those are important. I do not really understand why they're important, but I guess some kind of algorithms do something that make more people see the podcast. I Again, I have no idea how all of this stuff works, but thank you again so much for listening, and as always, keep up the good fight. Oh, we must